Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. Would you look at your neighbor and say, man, it's awful good to see you this morning. I'm blessed to be sitting beside you. You look wonderful. So glad to have everybody this morning. If you're a guest of ours, we want to thank you for coming. I will say you picked an interesting day to come on. I'm a little bit nervous about the message that I have, but the Lord's given it to me. And I gave a little disclaimer to our members, and I'll go ahead and give it just in case. I don't know who all is in here, but uh, just due to the nature of the content this morning, I would suggest perhaps if you have a child that's not yet in sixth grade or above, you may want to check them into the kids' church. So that gets everybody excited right out of the gate. <laughs> Amen. So we started a sermon series last week called, Did God Really Say?, because that was the first statement that Satan made in the Garden of Eden. And we see an attack on culture and biblical principles in our world today. That is literally one of Satan's main tactics is not to show himself blatantly like we see sometimes. But to deceptively make us question whether or not God really said what he said on various issues. And so this morning in particular I want to preach a message to you about that God really say sex is by design. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And i got to be honest with you, I've got a lot to say this morning, so I want you to hang with me, and I think the Lord will help us through it. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, here's what Jesus says. He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that, if anyone, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray together. Father, we're just grateful for your presence this morning. And God, we are grateful that you're a God of mercy and a God of love. And I know, Lord, that as we open your word this morning, that spirit of truth, you are here to teach us all things and to guide us into all truth. And it's your desire, God, that your word would transform us into the very image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we uncover some of these topics, I pray that your presence would be here, Lord, that your love would be poured out in hearts. And that as correction comes, Lord, you would just simply reveal the beauty of your design for our lives and that we would be able to come into agreement and into alignment with it, Lord. I pray that all shame and condemnation would fall to the ground in our lives, and Lord, that by knowing your truth more and more, we would find greater freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is a difficult passage that I began with, but I remember when I first read this passage, it cut me like a knife, as it probably does a lot of you men in here, and possibly even some of you women, right? It cuts like a knife, but beginning this, this scripture, you know, it, it caught me at a time in my life when I had a lot of addictions, a lot of sexual addictions. And I can remember how I got to where I got. And one of the things that we need to understand is, as a culture here in America, and even as, as Christians, is that right now in America, our, this young generation is, is literally being taught about sex through pornography. And I remember the first time that I saw pornography. Well, welcome our visitors this morning once again. <laughs> Getting to it right out of the gate. I remember the first time I saw pornography, I was in, I think it was either second or third grade, and a young man came into uh, the, the classroom, and he pulled out a magazine that he had found in his dad's closet. And I remember looking at that magazine for the first time when I was in second or third grade, seven or eight years old, and I felt so many emotions come up in me. I remember feeling, feeling shame. My, my face got hot, but I also felt attraction, and I, di I didn't know what was going on completely. It's the first time I'd ever seen anything like that as a young man. And, uh, and that was my first introduction to it. And then I can remember when I was in fourth grade specifically, uh, some of my neighbors, my buddies, had some older brothers. And they had like a, a big stash. You know what I'm talking about? And we would go over into this place, into this house, and, and look at this big stash. And at that particular time, I was 10 years old. And then you go into, into middle school. I was in sixth grade. I was in middle school. And guess what? That's when the Internet started becoming a little bit better. And you could actually download a video in about 24 hours, if y'all know what I'm talking about. I don't know. I, back in the day, we had dial-up, and everybody had a computer that was like this big. 
And, but I remember in middle school and high school, all of my friends on their personal computers at home, they had a nice uh, repertoire of, of videos that they could watch. And I remember seeing some of the most horrific things that I've ever seen in my life that honestly I can't even get out of my memory uh, to a large degree. And, but but when, as growing up in high school, pornography was a common thing. I didn't have a friend or know of a man that didn't have a stash of pornography and wasn't completely addicted to it and looking at it daily. And so what's happening is, is in our generation, I want you to understand this, because in our generation, it's worse than it was then. Back when I was in on that stuff, son, I didn't get to carry around a computer that I could have access to anything I wanted to have access to at any time. There were not apps where I could send photos of myself to another young lady. You know what I'm talking about. But our generation has full access to far more than I did. And see, we have a generation that is growing up marinating their brains in pornography. And so when we think about this, we ha we, in the church, we have a hard time discussing some of these things, but we have to consider our generation now because everything is changing. I read an article just this week in the New York Times in 2018, and it was about what teenagers are learning from online porn. And it talks about how there was a porn literacy class for high schoolers, and these high school boys would leave school at 3 p.m., and they would go to their porn literacy class. And here's what it says. It says, it was almost 4 p.m., the boys started to get gather their backpacks to head to a class known as porn literacy. The course with the official title, The Truth About Pornography, a pornography literacy curriculum for high school students designed to reduce sexual and dating violence. But for around two hours each week for five weeks, the students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, take part in porn literacy, which aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, and relationships and body images are portrayed in porn. And this is the success of the sexual revolution in our generation and culture. And you may talk about what the sexual revolution is, but it's got to a point, we're going to get into that, but it's gotten to a point where in our culture, sex is pushed on our young people, and it has been an agenda for years to do so for a very specific purpose. But now, notice in American culture, we're at a place where we actually think at large in American culture that it's a good idea to teach 15-year-olds to watch different people have sex in different types of ways and analyze it. That's where we're at. Do y'all recognize this? I'm just, I'm just wondering if you do recognize this. One woman says, Mary Everstadt says this about the sexual revolution. She says, the sexual revolution is the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting acts. In other words, she's saying basically what we've done in our culture and our generation is to say that if married sex is outdated and people are just trying to put restrictions on us and what kids need to know is whatever feeling they have or they're introduced to at a young age. They need to go after it. They need to feel it. They need to experience it because it's a healthy thing. It's a hygienic thing. And all it is is an impulse. If you get hungry, you need to go to McDonald's and get you a Big Mac. If you get aroused, you need to look at some porn and find somebody to have sex with. And that's what it's come down to in our generation. This is what American culture believes. And whether you like to agree with it or not, it is bleeding into the minds of the church. And we're losing a biblical worldview when it comes to sex. And here's the thing. If you look at the stats of Christians, they're close to the same in our world. We talked a little bit about that last week uh, concerning premarital sex, abortion, divorce, all of these things. Now, here's what I want to say about the stats of people who call themselves Christians. Now, they, what they do, they practice all of the same things as the rest of the world does to a large degree, but they do it with a deep sense of struggle because they've not found the ability in Christ or grown into a relationship with Christ where they have experienced true freedom from these things. So if this is the culture we're living in, what do we do about this in the church? Now, I want you to understand something about sex and the reason it's a topic that we have to talk about and discuss is because sex is actually different from every other sin. Have you ever heard that saying, and maybe you've even said it before, well, sin is sin, sin is sin. People say that all the time, sin is sin, sin is sin. Well, see, the Bible actually does not teach that. 
Sin is sin in one regard that we are all under the law of sin and death and without Christ Jesus and turning from sin as a whole and turning to Christ Jesus and putting faith in Him. Yes, sin is sin. He's the only Savior from sin and we all need Savior for, uh, Savior from all of our sin. But see, in Scripture it teaches that different sins actually have different consequences and they play different roles in our lives. The Apostle Paul talked about this and he highlighted it when he spoke to the Corinthian church who had all kinds of spiritual power but no character and he's basically saying you guys are wilding out because you've been conformed to the culture around you. Living in Corinth was about like living in New York City and, it, and the culture around them had so invaded the church that while they believed in Jesus and the power of God was manifesting their character was not lining up with the scriptures. They practice all kinds of sexual immorality and Paul talks to them and here's what he says in 1 Corinthians in 6, in verse 12, he says, basically, you guys are saying, I have the right to do anything. Jesus has set me free, boys. I got the right to do anything. But he says, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but he says, I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, He says. Do you not know that He who unites Himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. And this is the whole biblical argument of, of, of sex being between a, a man and his wife where they become one flesh. But He says, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. Then it says this, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Every other sin in Scripture, it talks about uh, resisting temptation, moving away from it, denying it. The, but sexual sin, when it comes to sexual sin, it actually says to run from it. Don't put yourself in a position where you will be consumed by, by the lust of this world, by the pleasure of this world. One scholar says that the word for body there, the Greek word sarx, it can also mean self. Literally what he could be saying is whoever sins sexually sins against their own selves. It's not just something where you sin against God or you sin against another, but what you're actually doing is you impact your mental framework the way you think and you bend your body, your mind, your will and emotions away from God and Christ to be deformed into the image of the world. So it's a impacting you. You sin against yourself. You change who you are. You become something that God did not design you to be. It's a sin against the very design of how God made you to be. And so verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So when we sin sexually, just like we said, we're bending every part and every fiber of our being in a direction that is actually away from God. We distort our loves, we distort who we are, and we're moving further into darkness. And I want to say this this morning because as Christians, here's what I know. I even know after I preached about marriage last week, I have a lot of conversations with a lot of people, and I get it that every, by the time we're done, everybody in here is going to be like, oh my gosh, this is, I mean, this is hitting me. You know what I'm saying? And probably it already has hit most of you. But the beauty of it is, is, is that we are living in a broken world and we are broken and the only way that we're going to get fixed is if we know the truth of what God says, not listen to the lies of the enemy and allow Jesus Christ to heal us and form us by the power of His Holy Spirit into what He has called us to be. But without the truth, when we listen to the lies of the enemy and we hear that voice that says, did God really say this stuff? And we just go headlong into whatever we're feeling. We lose Christ and we lose the power of God and we have no possibility as the church to change our generation for the kingdom of God. And so we have to continue to press into this because sin has enough combustive force in the life of Christians, not just worldly people, but in the life of Christians to incinerate conscience, your vows, your family commitments, your devotion, and anything else in its path. What I'm saying is, is that when sin creeps into the life of a Christian family, we've seen it over and over again, it destroys it from the inside out. And so it's something that we have to be aware of. Now, I'm not here 
to produce any shame. That's not my goal. God's goal is never to produce any shame. What I know about God is He loves setting people free from shame and condemnation. He loves washing you in His blood and letting you know that He knows that you're broken and He knows the worst moments of your life and He knows your temptations and He knows what you do in secret and He knows what you do in dark, but He went to the cross for those dark things that you do so that you could be set free and know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He wants us all free from these things, but we must have biblical clarity. I'm not going to do anybody good as a pastor if I cover up sin, but I'm also not going to be a good, doing a good job as a pastor if I condemn people. So somewhere right in the middle, we've got to have biblical clarity about what the truth is, which leads us to the blood of Jesus, which washes us and cleanses us and makes us new. So I want to give you three quick views on sex. Number one, and this has even been a view in the church to some degree, is that sex is gross. Is everybody in here like, that ain't me? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't, I don't feel that way, Clay. It's not how I feel about it. But you got to understand that there's been overreactions among Christians and even Christian parents is how they, how they teach their children, how they portray it. And one overreaction that Christians have taken historically is that it's gross, that sex is bad, that it's to be avoided. It's something we should stay away from, something we shouldn't talk to our kids about. Uh, a guy named Jerome in the year 342, he lived about 420 A.D., and he was probably one of the greatest Christian scholars in his time, especially by, by the time he was my age, he was considered one of the greatest Christian scholars who ever lived. But uh, in writing, he says this. He says he was plagued by sexual fantasies that he often found himself in, surrounded by bands of dancing girls. He was pale with fasting, and he says, but though my limbs were cold as ice, my mind was burning with desire, and the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me when my flesh was as good as dead. So he was actually trying to fast and put his, put his passions under subjection and live for He was trying to do what Jesus said. Like, like there were even men in his time that cut off their right hand. You know what I'm talking about? There were people that were taking it so seriously that the scripture that I read, because of the lust, within them they were trying to do some serious things to deal with that issue and it got to a point where he tried he, he spent all of his time translating scripture to try to put this stuff under and so he ends up writing the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible but here's, here's what he ends up doing y'all are going to like this actually you're not but it's going to be interesting he assigned spiritual values to women he said there's 100 for virgins 60 for widows and 30 for those who were married he ranked marriage just above fornication, and he gave prison-like rules. Matter of fact, he said this, anyone who is too passionate a lover with his own wife is himself an adulterer. Can I tell you that's the wrong view? In the succeeding centuries following church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursdays because it was the day of Christ's arrest. They forbid sex on Fridays because it's the day that he died. They forbid it on Saturdays in honor of the Blessed Virgin and on Sunday in honor of the departed saints. Wednesday sometimes made the list too, as did the 40-day fast periods between Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost. The feast days, the days of the apostles, the days of female purity. One pope assigned a painter to clothe the nudes in the Sistine Chapel. And then came the rule that all priests must be celibate. And the list continued to escalate until it was estimated that there were only 44 days in the year available for God-blessed marital sex. Now imagine I gave you a calendar in here this morning and say, these 44 days out of the year is when you married couples can have sex. That is a bad view on sex in Scripture. But it happens that we don't want to teach it. We, we, you need to avoid that. And we're telling little, little Johnny, you don't need to do this. And little Johnny's like, I don't feel this way about it, Mom and Dad. You're going to have to give me a better idea of what's going on in the world than just ignore it and act like it's not out there. Because if I, everywhere I look, everybody's on spring break. Everywhere I look, everybody's diving headlong into this. It looks pleasurable. It seems pleasurable. It feels pleasurable. So the only other option I got is that it's a good thing and I need to dive into this. And, and so he, we're, we're dealing with this, but they've got, there's a religious formula that basically says this. Moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. If we've got moral standards, if we've got willpower, somehow if we resist things hard enough, maybe we'll be holy. This is a religious formula, but guess what? It does not work. The truth is, is that moral standards plus willpower will equal failure. How many in here you ever tried that? I remember when I first read the Bible, like I read Matthew 5, and I'm like, boys, i got to quit this stuff. 
I tried to quit and failed. I tried harder to quit and failed. I tried harder to quit and failed. I tried harder to quit and failed. Of course, most of you know my testimony. I end up through the practice, godly practice, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God sets me free from so many addictions to come. But in the beginning, it was a difficult thing that I did not have the strength to overcome. Now, Philip Yancey, he says this, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside of church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. You remember God invented sex? Like it was his idea. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. And surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. This is where we find ourselves in the church. It's just like, you know, you church folks ain't doing much better. Why are we going to listen to you about what you got to say about sex? Why do we even need to care? Why do we need to even think through it? Because you guys mess up just as bad as we do. And I hear that so often. People come to me and they say, man, I would come to church, but I know people that go to church. And can I tell you this? I know people that go to church too, and every last one of them are broken. You're hard-pressed to find somebody that is actually seeking Jesus to the point where they've had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, where they're now living a transformed life. But can I tell you that Jesus died on the cross not for us to live defeated lives, but for us to live a way that is counter-cultural, that when people see our lives and they see our purity, they know that is what God has designed human beings to be. Jesus calls us into that. And the second view, and this is really the view of culture, and it's that sex is actually God. Sex is what we... What we need to worship, we put at the forefront of our lives. It means everything. It's our identity. I mean, it's everything in our world today. There was a phrase coined by a guy named Wilhelm Reich in the 1920s called sex positivity. And this uh, sexologist named Carol Queen, she says this, The sex positive movement does not, in general, make moral or ethical distinctions between heterosexual or homosexual sex, or masturbation, regarding these choices as matters of personal preference. Other sex-positive positions include acceptance of BDSM and polyamory, as well as asexuality. The sex-positive movement is also concerned with the teaching of comprehensive and accurate sex education in schools. It's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium. That instead of having two or three or half a dozen other sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positivity respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. Do you know why your kids' television shows and movies are so filled with sexual propaganda nowadays? Because since the 1920s, there's been an underlying current of sexual positivity, and it's come to the forefront in our day where now all the walls have come down, and I promise you this, there are people with a very very intentional agenda that are trying to deform your children into the culture of this world instead of the image of Christ. And they're trying to start from a young age because here's what, here's what they know. They know that by the age of 10, your children will, for the most part, have formed their morality. And you're not the ones teaching them sex. Pornography is because now they all got devices and you let them have it. This is good this morning, right? And we live in a demonic world the God of this age is trying to deform your families away from the image of Christ and into broken sexuality. And here's the thing. Culture's formula is this. If you've got a desire and you've got consent and the other person it says, okay, well, that equals freedom and that's what we want. But here's the thing. When I look at our world and how there's just sexual anarchy, anything goes, hook up with whoever you want to, look at whatever you want to, watch whatever you want to, what I am not finding is more freedom. I'm finding more people that are depressed. 
more people that are full of anxiety, more people that are confused, more people that are entering into self-harm, more people that are on greater levels of medication, more people being diagnosed with mental disorders, more people in greater fear and anxiety and bondage than they ever have been before. What we're not finding because we are desirable and we're, and we're getting consent and looking at porn, we're not finding more freedom. And so here's what happens, and Nancy Piercy says this about what's going on in our educational system. It says, the same bleak view of sexuality is inculcated in young children's minds by the public school system. I know most people, we got a lot of people, a lot of people in here in churches in the public school system, etc. I know y'all got a lot of pressure, never say anything about Jesus, just follow the curriculum. A video put out by the Children's Television Workshop defines sexual relations as simply something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. Nothing more, nothing less. No hint that sexuality has any moral or social significance. No suggestion that it has a richer purpose than sheer sensual gratification such as bonding husband and wife together to create a safe haven for raising children. Instead, sexuality is portrayed as an exchange of physical services between two autonomous, disconnected individuals. It's sex as a commodity. Now, I know I'm reading a lot. This is almost like you're reading a book this morning, but y'all need to just follow with me because I need to break this down. You can revisit it later if you want to on the podcast because I know it's a lot, but we need to get through this. The truth is, is that desire plus content actually equals disillusionment. People just doing whatever they want to do, watching whatever they want to do, feeling whatever they want to feel, chasing the millions of different sexual orientations that we now have. It brings us into confusion. And we talk about sex as God. It was so interesting to me. I don't know how many of you got a chance to watch the Grammys. I don't watch the Grammys, but I have seen the fallout of what happened recently at the Grammys. And, and you know, what we had was, was, was interesting because at the center of it that made a, a lot of stir I guess in the news was a guy named Sam Smith who uh, took the stage dressed up as Satan had hooves on everybody was in red there was fire going on there's a bunch of women dressed up as demons that were sort of worshiping him and of course he basically said that his album was a form of sexual and spiritual liberation he says it's going to be amazing of course CBS responds to a tweet and says we're ready to worship thinking, what, are y'all, what are y'all ready to worship actually Are you all ready to worship Satan? Are you ready to worship this sexual anarchy? What's going on in our world spiritually? What's happening in our world spiritually? So you see that full manifestation of a man who who basically says that he's he's non-binary. He doesn't fit into male or female. and, And then he's got another woman that is a transgender woman with him in this performance. And in that performance, as that's taking place, you you see all this going on, but you see this satanic emergence of things behind it. And my question is, what is is actually behind this sexual movement? What do you think? As Christians, we should see it as a demonic move, no doubt. And here's the thing. If people want to say, well, Clay, you're just crazy. That's just weird. We don't even believe in that stuff. I do. We do. The Christian church does. And that's why we resist at all costs any doctrine of any demon that would try to bring us into a position where we begin to swallow the pill of these lies where Satan comes and said, did God really say sex is by design? Don't you just mean that? I look, the, it's clear. You just need to go with whatever you feel. And anybody who resists that is a bigot and they're full of hate and they're liars. But here's the thing. You know, I'm not even really worried about Somebody like Sam Smith. I mean, you watch a dude dress up like the devil, you're like, that's dark, that's evil. And, and you as Christians, you can look at that and say, well, well, we thank God we're not a part of that. But you know what's scary? Is that in churches, what's more dangerous than Sam Smith dressing up as the devil and a bunch of women's worship, worshiping sex around him is the teachings that are coming into the church with pastors who say, you know what really God's love really is? It's when you just love yourself. It's when you just do what feels good to you. And they get up on Sundays and they water down the Word of God and they won't tell their people the truth and they allow them to live any way that they want and they preach tolerance of all kinds of sin in the name of empathy. And that is far more demonic than a Sam Smith concert. Far more demonic than a Sam Smith concert. I'd rather Sam Smith dance in front of you all day than some of y'all listen to the preaching that's going on in the world. They don't preach the Bible anymore. Because the churches themselves have swallowed the peel of American culture in order to please these things. And they've adopted the lie. Did God really say that? We want to go along with this thing. And it's sex is God. Here's Romans 1. Basically, if you read Romans 1, this is the argument. 
that if you remove Creator God, you remove the design that God has made us for. And if you remove God's design, then you remove God's purpose for your life. And if you remove His purpose for your life, then you remove all accountability. And if you remove accountability, then you don't need to answer for your choices. And if you remove people who give an account for their life and their choices, then you remove the fear of God, which is actually the beginning of wisdom. And then you are left with depraved minds where there's only total chaos and confusion and there's absolute sexual anarchy. That is Romans 1 in a nutshell. As soon as you get rid of the Creator and you get rid of design, you end up in ultimate confusion and sexual anarchy. Anything goes. Any sin goes, and we want to tolerate it because that's God's love. Can I tell you, that is not God's love. God loved us when we had a depraved mind, when we were in a reprobate state, when we were in the greatest amount of sexual sin we could ever imagine. He said, I've come to die for that sin, but you must repent and turn from it and acknowledge the truth and lay it down and forsake it and receive my spirit to be transformed from the inside out and live a new life. And I pray Sam Smith and everybody else in the world who is going in that direction that they would have an encounter with the true love of Jesus Christ that would bring them out of that darkness and into the light and they could stand up and testify of the goodness of the Lord that sets them free from demonic bondages. That's why the church exists to stand for the truth in a generation not to be mean, not to be angry, not to be hateful but to boldly say in love this is the truth. If you live in error you're going to die and you're not going to make it. And so this is a difficult thing. I get it. So thirdly Sex is a gift. The truth is, is that sex is a gift. God designed it. You think, who, who designed your body? God designed your body. Sexual desires is something that He put within a person because He wanted to bond two people together in, in a marriage that actually reveals the beauty and holiness of God. Sex is sacred. Sex is holy. Sex is pure, but God puts certain boundaries around it so that it functions as He designed it to function. Even at the apex of sexual pleasure is the power to actually create new life. It is the most powerful gift that God has given to human beings, which is why Satan attacks it so much. He wants to distort it because he knows that if he distorts sex, he distorts family, he distorts love, and humanity breaks down as a whole. He understands that. And so he wants to break it down at its roots. I want you to understand something that fire... Is an amazing gift, isn't it? I don't know about y'all. How many of you, you like a fire? Son, I like building a fire. I went the other day to my, my man Dennis Cotton's house and got all kinds of firewood and stacked it up. And I went out there the first time I built me a fire. It's got blocks around it because you need boundaries around a fire. Matter of fact, little Everett came up and we built a big fire. I like getting my fire big. You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, no, I want to see how hot this thing can get. And sex within marriage is in the same way. As you can get it as hot as you want to as long as it's in the boundaries. Somebody amen me this morning. I know y'all didn't like my, my wife's like, oh my God. <laughs> because fire, fire is awesome inside the boundaries. It's a gift inside the boundaries. But if little Everett comes up and says, boys, let's take some of this fire and bring it over into the living room. I'd like to see this in the living room. We say, no. No, we ain't taking it. That'll burn the house down. It'll burn the house down. You get it outside the boundaries. You get that fire outside the boundaries, it'll spread and set the woods on fire. Sex is the same way. It's a wonderful gift, but if you get it outside of the boundaries of marriage, it sets the world on fire. It begins to burn down morals. It burns down character. It destroys families. It destroys homes. It wrecks children's lives. And all of a sudden you find yourself in this place where you're wondering, man, which way did we go? And see, when Jesus talks about sex, it's not simply what you should do, what you should not do, but who are you becoming? It's always an issue of who you're becoming. The Christian life is not about, I need to follow these rules. I need to go to church. I need to pray. I need to read my Bible. No, the Christian life is about you have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ now, and He is forming you day by day into the image of Jesus Christ. It's not about what you should do or what you shouldn't do. It's about who are you currently becoming. Are you being formed into the image of Jesus Christ? Are you being deformed into the image of this world? What's happening in your own heart? 1 Thessalonians 4, this is a powerful scripture, but I want you to allow it to wash over you afresh. 
It says it is God's will. So many people think, I just want to know God's will in this situation. I just want to know God's will. Well, here's one way that you can know God's will. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans. And let me tell you this, America is not a Christian nation. It is a pagan nation. Not like the pagans who do not know God and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction, what I'm preaching, if you reject this, you don't reject Clay's teaching but you reject God who has given you of His Holy Spirit. Sexual formation is about learning control and submitting to the Holy Spirit. And so how do we learn to control ourselves and submit to the Spirit? First, we've got to have a vision for what Christian sexuality is. I wonder sometimes if people have even asked the question, what is sex actually? And like, what, what, what did God even give it to us for? And what's it all about? So let me give you a, a vision for Christian sexuality. Because even scientifically, what you find is what people study. Because a lot of people just say, we're highly evolved animals. Well, no, scientifically, if you study, you find that for animals, primarily, sex is about fertilization. But you find for human beings, sex is far more about relationship. And within that relationship, there is the gift of also physical pleasure. But it's different. So a vision for Christian sexuality is not that we're just animals, but we need to understand, number one, is that sex points to a greater reality of the story that we actually long for. The truth about every human being is, and you got to understand this, you may not realize it or not, you want to be known and you want to fully know somebody else. It's innate within, within our hearts because we're created in the image of God. God Himself desires to know us fully and us know Him fully. He says that in the end many will do things in His name, but He says, depart from me. Why? Because I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. You never opened your heart and allowed me to see the fullness of who you were. And so even in a sexual relationship, it is actually an image. The Bible teaches that a man and his wife in union in a, in a sexual intimate relationship is actually a reflection of Christ and the church who have entered into a relationship where they have become one. And he says this is what everybody has always been looking for. This is the gospel story because here's the beautiful thing about marriage and the gospel story. I don't know if, you, if it's this way with your relationship, but Andrea knows all the worst parts of me. She knows, she knows all the evil in my heart. She knows my bad attitudes. She knows all the worst parts of me. But guess what? Even in the middle of all the worst parts of me, she forgives me and she loves me and we have a united union as one in that marriage. And in that, there's safety. In that, there's protection. And there's boundaries in that. Because when we had a marriage ceremony and we stood and we made vows to one another, basically what we were saying is, I, we're not going to allow any competing love to break this boundary. You are the object of, of, of beauty for me. I ain't looking at nothing. I'm not letting anything else enter into this covenant. And it's the same way with God. You can't let any, any other love compete and break into your love and your relationship with God. Philip Yancey says this, he says, The very word sex comes from a Latin word that means to cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite to restore somehow the union that has been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within as the longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed the longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with a God who created us. The reason we are chasing sex like a bunch of wild rabbits, son, is because we don't have a union with God our Creator. We're not filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't know Him. Secondly, sex is holistic. It's not just physical, momentary pleasure. Our, our culture is obsessed with sexual practice, but our culture has basically broken it down into simply just this. It's just a moment of physical pleasure, something that you should do and you should practice and you should feel good about it. And we, when we don't have a vision for sex as, as something that con, con, contains our entire heart, our soul, our mind, our strength in a whole life union, we lose meaning and we break it down into something that it's not. There's a guy, I don't know, there's a movie, maybe you've heard about it, maybe you've seen it, I remember seeing it as a kid, it's called A Beautiful Mind by 
uh, about a guy named John Nash. It was a true story. But he says that this woman at the bar, he says, I don't have the words to say whatever it is that's necessary to get you into bed so we can just pretend I've said those things and skip to the part where we exchange bodily fluids. Of course, what she do? She smacks him across the face. I mean, some of y'all try that pickup line, see how that works, right? She smacks him across the face. Why? Because deep down as human beings, we know that it is not just a one-time act of pleasure, that there's something that goes into it where you expect trust, you expect care, you expect somebody opening themselves up to it. There's emotions tied into it. There's something that goes on than just a momentary physical act. And here's the thing. When we chase this and we leave whole life union behind in our culture, all of the sex that people are entering into is actually statistically making them far more lonely than it is happy. People are lonelier than they ever have been in their lives. They've got no spiritual bond, no intimacy. They've got no love. They've got no truth. They're having sex every day and they're empty as all get out. And that's the condition of our world. Thirdly, sex is tied to our formation. This is a Christian vision for sex. It's tied to our formation. Here's, here's what people don't get. Christians teach a chaste tension. It ain't easy, y'all. Anybody realize that? Like, purity's hard. Christianity is difficult. This is why we practice things even at the beginning of the year. We went through 21 days of prayer and fasting. You know what fasting does? It says no to physical appetites because Christians don't believe you should pursue every natural appetite that you have. Christians actually believe that if you train your appetites, you can enter into the love of the Spirit, into the joy of the Spirit, into the peace of the Spirit, and into the power of God. The world teaches you to not train your appetites but to indulge your appetites. But when you do, you enter into darkness. Darkness. You're deformed in character. Things not like joy and peace and love and self-control come up in your life, but things like anger, things like depression, things like fear and anxiety, things like hatred and jealousy, all of those things start to creep in your soul because rather than training your appetites, you simply go after your appetites. And lastly, sex is a witness to the world. Marriage, purity, and fidelity is a picture of Jesus and the church. There was somebody in the early church who said about early Christians, they said this, Christians marry as do all the others that beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring and they have a common table but not a common bed. They care for their kids, they're hospitable, and they are sexually faithful. See, when the world looks at a family that loves one another and, and is set on sexual faithfulness, and they see it as a witness that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Let me tell you something. The way you know Jesus has been raised, the way people knew God was real was when they saw Clay Bishop's life be transformed. People in my life saw that dude used to be addicted to everything in the world. He used to have the filthiest mouth. He used to be running out of women like a wild man. And all of a sudden, he's telling us no to none of that. That's a witness that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and he was really raised from the dead. Because you don't just up and turn over a new leaf one day and say, I'm going to quit all that stuff. No, Jesus Christ sets people free. And so it's a witness to the world when you see a marriage that says we believe that sex binds a man and a woman together so that they can have intimacy and union and it reflects the love of God and they have a family where they care for their children and people see that and it is the greatest witness to who Jesus Christ really is. If you're sexually pure and you're generous with your money, it's one of the greatest demonstrations that you truly are following Christ in our world today because the world's saying get as much as you can on both sides of it. And we're saying, no, we're resisting that. But let me give you a quick few obstacles to a Christian view of sex. Number one, pornography. Y'all still good this morning? All right. We're just trying to teach this morning. I know it's a lengthy one, but we're just trying to teach. I know personally of no other struggle that plagues men and women and produces shame like pornography as a pastor. I just don't. It eats people up. It eats so many people up. Jan Messer said, porn is a sickness. It's when our healthy sexuality is distorted and it becomes sick. Chris Hedges said this. He said, the largest users, notice this. I want you to pay attention. The largest users of internet porn are between the ages of 12 and 17. And porn producers increasingly target adolescents. Porn targets the mid-teens to the mid-20s and up. And the number one searched porn term in the world is the phrase teen. 
just let that saturate there for a minute. Because I can promise you this. Odds are, if you got a child 10 or above statistically, especially if he's a boy, he's already been looking at porn. Oh, but I check his iPad. Bet. <laughs> Bet. This is the culture that we live in, and it's the first time that a generation of young people have been raised by marinating their brains in pornography, and it has shaped the men that they become in their lives. It shaped who I became. I was an animal by the time I was 20 years old. And if were it not for the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, I would have been lost. But see, porn literally rewires our brains and our neural patterns. It's, it's just like any other addiction. When, when you look at sexual activity, it releases dopamine in your brain, but here's the problem. Each time it releases dopamine, the last thing that you watch doesn't give you the same re dopamine release, so you need greater levels and greater measures. And here's the thing that neuroscientists say is that it's so tied in, the sexual part of your brain is so tied in to the aggression centers of your brain that that's why porn is often turns violent. And men young men enter into violent pornography because what fires together, neurologists say, wires together. And it transforms the way their brain patterns function so that they become more aggressive, more angry, and they need more violent pornography in order to move in that direction so that at the end of the day, they no longer know how to relate to a woman or to reach out to a woman rightfully or to date or court a woman or anything or treat a woman respectfully because they've been watching and marinating their brains in violent pornography. Ain't nobody want to hear that this morning. It's the reality of the world we live in. Young men don't know how to move forward in a right relationship, and it impacts our relationship and what people want. In a recent study of 16- to 18-year-old Americans, nearly every participant reported learning how to have sex by watching porn. John Paul II said, There is no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. The problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but rather that it shows too little. You don't see that person as a person. It just becomes an object of your sexual gratification. And imagine how young people are being formed when they're literally watching hours and hours and hours of this and how it's shaping their mind. It becomes a big issue. Secondly, I'm, I'm going a little bit further. I'm going to tell you something, y'all. I prayed hard to get through this message. Secondly is masturbation. The Bible doesn't address the issue of masturbation, but pornography leads into it. And here's the other thing. Like if I put out questions, people ask these questions. They ain't going to come in and talk about it on Sunday. But people ask these questions privately. But the Bible doesn't address it. But let me give you this. Augustine, who was a church father, he had this definition of sin. He called sin love turned in on itself. Like self-love, turning in on everything. So C.S. Lewis, even though the Bible doesn't address it, C.S. Lewis said something about it that I think will help you understand something about this. And he wrote to a young American boy who was asking a question about masturbation, and he said this, and it's really good. He says, For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren, and it turns it back. Here's what he's saying. He's saying a sexual appetite's a good thing because it takes a man and it leads him out of himself to pursue a woman and to bind with, him, with her in marriage, and then they have children. But guess what? Because it moves him to that woman, that woman will correct his character and his nature. Somebody amen me this morning. And he's saying that is a healthy thing because it moves him out of himself and he's now in a relationship with a woman which will actually form him greater into the image of Christ because he will have to learn self-denial. He'll have to learn how to love. He'll have to learn how to sacrifice himself. But he said in masturbation it turns all that back in on himself and sends the man back into the prison of himself there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. So many young men have united with so many false images of women that they'll never be able, except by the grace of God, to unite with a real woman. For the harm is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments. I don't know about you all, my wife calls for sacrifices and adjustments. And it can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can rival. 
Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity, and in the end they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. And after all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. I believe there's people that love the prison today. They get stuck in it. I've been there. I've been stuck in that prison, unable to get out, locked in, with an imaginary harem within. But God is saying, no, no, no. The way I've designed sex is that your entire passion and your love is to be pointed toward one other person so that you bond with that person and you create a family that looks like the image of Christ. That's why in Ephesians 5, 3, he says, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Here's the thing, again, who am I becoming? What am I being formed by what I'm doing in my life? All of this impacts our vision. And so you lead from porn to masturbation, and it leads into our image of dating. Y'all still good with me? I got 10 minutes left, okay? It leads into our image of dating. and In Jesus' time, I don't know if you believe this or not, uh, people didn't date. A man would go and approach the family and say, I would like to marry this woman. And the family would basically take them through some character and skills tests to see if the match was right. And they would all build a friendship and a relationship within that. And then the family would decide if the match was right and the marriage would be arranged. But see, in 1914-ish, dating came on the scene. And when dating came on the scene, no longer did the man go within the family to try to court the woman. But the man goes and takes the woman away from the family. And then he just tries to have some fun out of her, spend some money, go to the movies, etc., etc., build a relationship. But it really begins to revolve around sex. And dating as a whole, it inevitably led to what we call hookup culture. Now, how many of you are on Tinder this morning? Don't raise your hand. I just learned about it recently. I just learned about it recently. But they got these apps now for dating for hookup culture. I read an article. Listen to this. Tinder and hookup culture. Vanity Fair wrote this article. And this guy is being interviewed and he says this about it. He said, guys view everything as a competition. He elaborates with his deep reassuring voice. Who slept with the best, hottest girls? With these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick up the best one. Or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger, it's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you could rack up a hundred girls you've slept with in a year. He says that he himself has slept with five different women he met on Tinder. Tinderellas, the guys call them, in the last eight days. I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over, but then they start wanting me to care more and I just don't. Parents, this is, the, this is the culture your kids are being raised in. And, and here's the thing. Most people would experience that right there and wouldn't even blush at it because it's so common and so normal that it's beginning to be accepted in our generation. And because of this type of culture, we, it's rare for a woman to meet a man in our generation who treats her like a priority instead of an option. Just one option out of a million. I'm finishing up here. But I want to show you something really quick. We talk about four loves. C.S. Lewis wrote a book about four loves. And one of the loves in the Greek language is eros. And here's the thing. Eros is erotic love. It's what we talk about when we talk about sex. There's storge, which is nostalgic, enjoyable feeling. And then there's phileo, which is friendship love. And then lastly is agape, which is other-oriented sacrificial love. Now, in our culture, it teaches us, number one, you start with eros. Try to hook up with that person. And then maybe if you like them, if, they're, if, they're, if, they're, if you like that part of them, then you come into a place where you try to get, have some fun with them. And then maybe if you like them through that, then you'll be a friend for theirs for a while. And then lastly, if you really like them a whole lot, you might consider marrying them. Jesus flips that on his head and said, no, love is ordered a different way. When you look at another person to date them or be in a relationship with them, number one, you ask yourself, how do I love this person self-sacrificially? How do I put myself before them. 
Secondly, then how do I build a friendship where I care about this person and commit to them? And thirdly, how do I learn to actually begin to enjoy them as a person? And then lastly, if you really love them in that process, you marry them and you enter into sexual consummation and two, become one flesh. That is God's order. That is God's design. Tim Keller says it like this, when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it is even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, that person really means I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say, my love for you has reached, has not reached the marriage level. So lastly, my last formula here, and it's the biblical formula, is we've got to have a vision of sex that comes from God, that comes from Scripture. And then we've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit, because I promise you, you can't live a pure life on your own. You need a vibrant relationship with God and the power of the Holy Spirit that will keep you pure. With God, all things are possible and He's able to do it. And thirdly, we need godly practices in our lives. And when those things are going on, Jesus restores us into the very image of God. And here's the thing. You talk about these things. It's like, man, the church, dude, it just doesn't, it just doesn't like joy. No, on the far end, we believe that in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. At His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. See, I spent my young adult life, not even young adult, my teenage years, pursuing pleasure. Sex, drugs, alcohol, the whole, the whole nine. And I always thought Christianity didn't have joy, had no fun in it. When I was filled with the Spirit of God and I had a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, I was really upset about it. I was like, how come somebody didn't tell me how good this was? Because the joy and the love that I encountered in Jesus Christ, no sex, no drugs ever even came close to touching what I experienced in God. And I'm telling you that in a real genuine relationship with God, not church, not religion, not you reading the Bible, even though those things are all good, but a genuine, vibrant relationship with God where the power of the Holy Spirit changes you from the inside out. There is love and joy there that absolutely pushes down and suppresses the evil desires that are within our hearts. And that's the way that we live as Christians. Now, I preach this and most people say, man, Clay, you preach that? I ain't nothing but a failure. I mean, I look at my life and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. I am nothing but a failure. There's no way I can sift through all of my addictions. Maybe even many of you have been abused. You've experienced things. I get people call me that are currently married, and they're like, man, we just didn't enter into this marriage the right way. Like, we're just broken people. We're broken sexually. Things have not worked according to Scripture. But let me tell you something. Jesus Christ loves you and He's calling you and He will redeem anybody regardless of their background or their situation or what they've been caught up in. Look at what Jesus did for the woman at the well. The woman had five failed marriages. And the man that she was currently living with was not her husband. But Jesus didn't give her a word of condemnation. He says, I know that you're longing for something. I know that deep down the reason you're chasing after men and, 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 and you're chasing sex is because deep down you're longing for something. And he said, it's living water. He said, you can get this from me. And she was so filled with joy after the conversation. She goes and she tells the people, come and meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. She realized that Jesus knew every aspect of her life, every sin, all of the hidden sexual stuff, everything that looked nasty. And it didn't bother her because she didn't sense condemnation. She sensed forgiveness and the relieving of all of her shame. He did the same for the woman caught in adultery. The religious people come and say, she deserves to be stoned. And every single one of us deserved to be stoned. But Jesus stood over her and said, woman, where are those who condemn you? She says, no man, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go 
and sin no more. He creates a space for mercy where you can come to Him and receive healing and you can come to Him and receive freedom. And sometimes this takes time, but He empowers you to leave changed, healed, shame lifted and broken, condemnation broken, sexually made whole, ready to enter into a relationship with somebody that's going to be powerful and, 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 and to image forth God's love. Here's my last thing. I saw this image, this bowl, if you want to put it up. It's called Kintsugi. And so basically what happens is in Kintsugi art, they take things that are broken that really in the beginning weren't of, weren't of necessarily that great a value. But they're broken and they bring them and they take precious metals like gold or platinum or silver, expensive metals, and they fuse them back together. And it's a very expensive art form. Matter of fact, the value of this, once it's brought back together because of the art form where people saw something that was once broken come into something that's beautiful. And even though it sees the cracks and it, it sees the brokenness, yet it becomes more beautiful. And the value of this pottery after it's fused back together and made whole with precious metals is greater than it was before it was broken. And what I want to tell you is that's what Jesus does in our lives. He puts us back together, heals us of our brokenness, our sexual brokenness, infuses the, the beautiful metals of redemption and life and healing and restoration. And when He puts us back together, He actually makes us more valuable. This is what Jesus wants to do in your life. But I'm telling you, you need to hear the Spirit this morning of what God is calling us to do because He's saying, I need you to live in a countercultural way that images forth my love and my beauty and what sex and marriage is really designed to be. And we need to live for this, people. We believe this is important enough to Jesus that he, that he talked about it expressly. And this is something that we need to go after and we need to pray. Infiltrates our hearts and our marriages and our homes and our lives. And that if we will have a vision for this and we will have godly practices with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually truly find Jesus forming us back into his image. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, I just thank you for your word. And though it's lengthy, God, I believe that you've had a lot to say to each of us. And God, I pray that your spirit would speak to each person, God, because no matter where we come from, no matter where we've been, we've all been broken. We've all entered into sexual sin of various kinds. But Jesus, you call us by your spirit back into your love. There's nothing that we have done, Lord, that you did not take to that cross because you loved us so much. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that in this moment you would draw hearts to a place of repentance. And Lord Jesus, you would bring restoration into marriages. You would bring restoration into families and into homes. And you would heal broken hearts. Even in this moment, God, is there sin that needs to be laid before you? Your word says that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'm asking you that as each person lays that sin at your feet, Jesus, that they would sense a new, fresh cleansing in your blood and know, God, that they are forgiven and they can walk out of here free and whole and at peace in Jesus' mighty name.